This morning, we continue our series, our study of the letter to the Philippians. So go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Philippians, this New Testament letter by the Apostle Paul. Uh, if you're looking for a Bible, uh, you can find one in the pew rack in front of you, um, or you're welcome to just follow along as the passage is printed for you in the worship guide. So this is our third week in this summer series. And what we've established at this point is that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi around 62 AD. It had been 10 years prior, most likely, that he had first visited Philippi, that he had come with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, he came proclaiming it and living it out. Uh, people responded. responded. We uh, talked about three people in particular uh, two weeks ago that responded to the message of Jesus gave their lives to it, and were foundational members of the church in Philippi. Uh, Philippi was also um, the first city, the first place in um, Europe to receive the gospel message. Paul, by the point that he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, is writing to encourage them, uh, but he is facing an incredible trial personally. Paul is writing under house arrest. And he does not know what awaits him. He does not know if he will ultimately be released or executed. And so he writes to the Philippians for two big purposes. One, to encourage them, but also to thank them. Um, we'll eventually see in chapter 4 that they had given him money to help him in his, his situation and his ministry. And he was really thankful for that. So he wanted to, to write and um, thank them for that gift. But what we notice throughout this letter is that Paul enjoyed a deep and special relationship with this church community. And hopefully what we've been seeing um, along the way already so far is that, yes, this is an ancient letter, but it has so much relevance for us today. And so I want to read our section that we're focusing in on this morning, uh, chapter 1. We'll be finishing chapter 1 this morning, so we're looking at chapter 1 verses 19 through 30. I'm going to actually begin with the very last few words of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which, shall I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better." But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word, ancient but relevant for us this morning. Let me pray. God, we pray that you would take this ancient word and apply it freshly to our hearts and our lives. Soften our hearts, make us responsive, and we pray that through this section of Scripture, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cause us to see Jesus, that you would cause us to desire and value him. And I pray that you would do that regardless of where we currently are in our spiritual journey. We pray this in his name, amen. To get us reflecting about the theme for this morning's sermon, I want to begin with a quote uh, from a guy named Charlie Peacock. Charlie Peacock is a Christian writer and also jazz musician, and he says this, here's what I figured out for myself. My life is going to tell a story whether I try to or not. It will tell a story that says, this is what a follower of Jesus is. This is what he is about. This is what he believes. This is what he thinks is most important. Because this is going to happen and can't be stopped, I had better make sure I know my role and my job description. A Christian is a living explanation. I love that. A Christian is a living explanation. It's very clear here early on in the first chapter of the letter to the Philippians that Paul believed this deep down in his bones. He believed that the job description of a Christian was to be a living explanation. He points out that he's come to this point in his life where he's figured this out. What has he figured out? That in one way or another, his life is going to tell a story. And so we begin there this morning. I begin with a question for you and for myself. What story are you seeking to tell with your life? Now, it's not a matter of, well, I'm not really telling a story with my life. I think that Charlie Peacock is right here. You are telling a story with your life. What story are you currently telling with your life? Do you believe it to be, as you examine it, a story that is worth telling? A story that is big and full, a story that is worth inviting others into. Or maybe without even having to do much examination this morning, you would answer quickly and say, I know that it's not. I want a different story. I want my life to explain something other than the story that it's currently explaining, but how do I get there? Well, hopefully this passage will, will help you, will help us all to get there, um, whether it be um, for the first time, we seek to have our stories caught up in the Jesus story, or whether for many of us, it's to go deeper into this story. And that is exactly the story that Paul is telling with his life, the Jesus story. We made that point last week. We noticed that Paul, for him to have this kind of resilient faith, for him to be this firm in his faith in this situation, being under house arrest, not knowing whether he would live or die, Ultimately, 
he had to be operating under some bigger story, a bigger story that he really believed and really believed in. And that story for Paul was the Jesus story. He sought to make it his goal in life to tell the Jesus story, to display Jesus as great. And that's what we are to explain with our own lives as disciples of Jesus. Our lives are meant to be an explanation of the greatness of Jesus. Our lives, our stories are meant to be an explanation of the Jesus story. And that is to be the case both in life and in death. Let's talk about how this is so in life. Paul is torn. It's almost like he's a tortured soul in this moment. And it's remarkable that we're brought into this inner dialogue that is happening within Paul. He's under house arrest, like we've said, not knowing whether he would ultimately live or die. And on the one hand, he's ready. And when I say that he's ready, what I mean is that he's ready to depart this world. He's ready to leave this world, to be in the very presence of Jesus. In verse 23, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Far better than what? Far better than dealing with all of the suffering, with all of the trials and tribulations and difficulties and persecution. So Paul knows from his own experience that it would be far better for him in the very immediate future for him to just simply be in the presence of Jesus, basking in the glory of Jesus. On the other hand, he knows that it would be more fruitful for him to stay in the world longer. And for what purpose? This is crazy to me, to serve others. It would be better, Paul says, to depart and be with Christ, but I could see how it would also be better for me to stay and to serve others, to make Jesus known to more and more people. In verse 22, he says, if I am in the flesh, if he continues living, that means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24, he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Here's Paul again. In his moment of suffering, thinking not about himself, but about the benefit of others. And so in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In verse 23, we're really brought into the tension. I am hard-pressed between the two. So it's kind of like a philosophical experiment, although it's not hypothetical for Paul. It's very experiential. He's in the moment experiencing these these emotions, and he invites the Philippian believers into this inner dialogue, into this um, philosophical question. All right, given my circumstances, should I want to go be with Jesus immediately, or should I want to stay and minister to you? And the answer comes back, well, both. Don't you hate the answer um, that you get when you ask questions that is like that? Well, the answer is both. Well, which should I do? Which should I long for more? Well, that's where Paul is. The fact of the matter is, is that from Paul's perspective, this is a win-win situation. Whatever happens, he wins. And so what is his intention? What is his deep longing? What is his goal? Well, he states it in verse 20. To honor Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. All week even up until the moment that I stood up here to begin this sermon, I've been wondering why Paul finishes that verse, or or not finishes it, but why he says, in my body. 
Look at it, verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that it with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He could have just simply said that Christ would be honored, whether by life or by death. But he includes those words, that phrase, in my body. Now, I've already kind of given it away, that I've been wrestling with this, wondering about it, trying to search for any commentary that would address this specific question of mine. I never found it. But I wonder if it's possibly because Paul knew that the Christian life, that human life, was meant to be lived in the body. Now, sometimes, particularly throughout the history of thought, and this has even invaded, I would say, infected the church um, at different times throughout church history, we have been led into this false belief that the body is bad, the soul is good, that spiritual is good, physical is bad. And that is not the biblical testimony at all. The biblical testimony actually presents us with an integrated and whole world in the very beginning. Human beings were meant to be body and soul. God didn't make a mistake when he made it so. And so all kinds of things come along with that. Living in the body is awkward, isn't it? Weird noises come out of our bodies. Weird smells come off of our bodies. We use expressions and phrases like we don't feel comfortable in our own skin. It is awkward being a human being. Now, let me clarify. It is awkward being a human being in a fallen world in which things do not operate the way that they were intended by God. And so when I hear, when I see, when I read, Paul include these words in my body, at least for me personally, all of the awkwardness that comes along with that comes right at me. It's easier to think of this disembodied experience, right? It's easier to think about living the Christian life, the human life, without all of the, the, the things that are obstacles, all of the things that uh, can harm us and, and all of that. But Paul knows that life is not lived in that way. He's a realist. And he recognizes that this is what God intends, that we live in our bodies. With all of the awkwardness, we lean into it, seeking to follow Jesus and have Jesus over time gradually redeem our humanity. Now, we catch on to something very theological here in these verses. Uh, we've already seen it, that Paul talks about the longing, um, the benefit of just simply in the immediate future, departing and going to be with Jesus. And so the theology we get there is that for a person who is in relationship with Jesus, in union with Jesus by faith, when they die, there's a sense in which they immediately go into the presence of Jesus. But we also know from uh, other parts of Scripture, and we know from experience that our bodies don't go with us. And so I, I think that's another thing that plays into this whole in my body phrase for us is that we think of being in our bodies as temporary. But that's not actually the case. For those who have passed away already, and for those of us who will pass away before Jesus comes to make all things new, the body and the soul being separated is what is temporary. Because in the beginning, God intended for them to go together, and in the end, God will bring them back together. And so, 
for a follower of Jesus who passes away, their presence is immediately, uh, their spirit is pretty uh, immediately in the presence of Jesus. And so we get this, all this practical stuff here, but it's also very theological. Paul can't help himself. That is who Paul is. Paul is an expert at making uh, deep theology accessible. But notice how he talks about living in his body. Now, we're going to talk um, in, a, in a little bit about dying in our body, but notice how Paul talks about living in the body. I want you to skip down and look at verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word that Paul uses here that is translated manner of life is a political word. It can also mean citizen. It's actually where we get our word for politics. And so it could be translated, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, Paul uses a similar phrase in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 20, where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you were here for the first week of our, our series, you might remember me saying that Philippi was a Roman colony. And what that meant was that Philippi had the honor and privilege of Roman citizenship. So the citizens of Philippi also enjoyed citizenship in Rome, even though Philippi was far from Rome. So Paul plays off of that idea, that concept, with his language he chooses. One commentator puts it this way. It is as if he says, you are proud of being Romans. You walk as Roman citizens. But you, my fellow believers, are actually citizens of the kingdom of God. So walk as a citizen. Conduct yourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God all the way through the whatevers of life. Now, what is implied here? Paul is implying, this is implicit in what he's saying, that retreat or isolation is not an option for us as followers of Jesus. And at the same time, conformity or accommodation are not options for us. So I want you to think of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, we have conformity slash assimilation. On the other end of the spectrum, we have... Um, what were the terms I used? Blanking. Do you remember? What's that? Isolation and retreat. So those are the, the two uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. And Paul says that the Christian way of being in the world, the, the way of the disciple, the way of Jesus, is neither. We can't accommodate. We can't change the message to make it more uh, palatable for the world. But at the same time, we can't simply have this mindset or this approach of, well, if we live out our faith in the world, we're going to be disliked, we're going to be persecuted, we're not going to be popular, so let's just retreat into a Christian bubble. Neither of those are options. What Paul has in mind here is cultural engagement, public life. That's basically how we could translate this verse, only let your public life your life in the city, your life in the world, be worthy of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. 
This is so helpful. I mean, this is speaking to where we are at this point um, in the history of our culture. Because as Christians, it is so easy for us um, to play into all kinds of different dichotomies, different ends of the spectrum. And you know the things I'm talking about. I'm a Republican or I am a Democrat and all of these things. And when we do that, I, I said this two weeks ago, we are being worldly. Paul says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. And so when we take human politics, human systems, and we say this is the one that represents Christianity, either way, we're being worldly. Paul says, you are not citizens of this city. You are not citizens of this world. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Bring the kingdom of heaven to bear on the world around you. Critique and challenge all over the place. That's what it, part of what it means to be citizens of heaven. And so there's a sense in which, not a sense, I mean, this is reality, that we are caught in between as disciples of Jesus. And maybe you are feeling it um, in our culture right now. And this word is for us this morning, because I don't know where you are in the midst of all of that, but sometimes I just want out of it. I just want out of it. Sometimes I think, I'm just going to go be a missionary in Africa. I haven't told my family that yet. But sometimes I think, I'm just going to go be a missionary in Africa. And then I realize, well, wait, they're dealing with the same things. Just in, you can't escape it. And even though it's understandable that we would fall into these, these um, possibilities of, all right, I'm going to, it would just be easier for me to accommodate and blend in, or I'm just going to isolate myself from the world. Even though both of those, for different reasons, are understandable, neither of those are the best option. I mean, let alone glorifying Jesus, they're not the best option. The best option for us is the way of Jesus. That's what this comes down to. At the end of the day, what we're ultimately resisting is suffering. We're resisting pain. We're resisting difficulty and hardship. We'd rather just blend in or we'd rather just isolate ourselves. But the way of Jesus is service and suffering in the midst of the world. That is the way of Jesus. I can't tell you any differently. So how do we do this? How do we live public lives seeking the common good of our city, the common good of the world in which God has placed us in, because those are the kinds of things that Paul has in mind here. How do we do this? Well, you can't do it alone. That's for sure. You can't do it alone. And so Paul says, uh, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. After all, this series is called Partnership in the Gospel or Partners in the Gospel. And Paul does not get away from that idea throughout his letter. We can't engage our city. We can't be people who stand up for truth, who stand up for justice, if we are doing this alone. We need each other. We need community. We need partnership. We need to be a people who are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. I don't know about you, but... That helps me some. Okay, it's not up to me to figure out how to live in this complex 
and confused world on my own. God has given me my brothers and sisters to walk alongside of me, to encourage me, to point me to Jesus in their own lives. Remember that uh, the end of that uh, quote I shared with you from the commentator? All the way through the whatevers of life. Only let your manner be of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ in the whatevers of life. The whatevers of life are hard. They make us uncomfortable. We don't know what life holds for us tomorrow. It could be pure joy and pleasure and blessing, or it could be trial and incredible difficulty and suffering. But either way, in whatever, we are to live the way of Jesus by his grace and his help. Think of it this way. Paul is saying, look, this is my situation now. I know that you know this situation. There are going to be times in life where it's so hard. You're going to want to bail. You're going to want to run away. You're going to want to isolate yourself. You're going to want to retreat. Don't do that because there's blessing to be had as you buckle up and stand firm and lean into Christ. The best opportunities in life for us to really know Jesus is in times of suffering and difficulty. A few weeks ago, I went to an amusement park with a few guys from my neighborhood. I don't go to amusement parks often, if you're wondering. In fact, I haven't been to an amusement park without my family in probably decades. But I went. And it wasn't my thing. Uh, we, did, we went on a trip to Cleveland, and uh, we went to the NFL Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I was more interested in those things. And the amusement park was like, well, that's part of the trip, so I'm going to, to do it. I hate roller coasters. I used to like roller coasters, but as I've gotten older, I've, I've grown to like, pretty much despise roller coasters. And so we, this was outside of Ohio, Cedar Point Amusement Park. Maybe you know of it or have been there. And um, supposedly they have like 16 or 17 uh, roller coasters, several of which are ranked in the top whatever in the world. And so we get there. It's a very warm day. The sun is blazing. We get into line. And I think, oh, well, the guys I'm with, they're all about the roller coasters. They know what they're doing. We're going to work our way into this. And actually, they're going to work their way into this because I'm going to ride the first couple, which I assume are just going to kind of be mellow, and then I'm going to just hang out and do whatever in the shade for the rest of the day. And I'm wondering why the line is an hour long. It's kind of odd for a ride that's just supposed to be mellow, I'm thinking. Getting sunburn, telling the guys, after this, I have to go uh, buy some sunscreen for my head. But I'm not really thinking about the ride, literally. Like, I'm just thinking, okay, this is an ordinary, mellow roller coaster. Well, after about an hour, we get to the top. Now, at this point, one of uh, the guys in our neighborhood, Nate Durant, had, um, he had gone to get a fast-paced uh, ticket so that he could just cruise through the lines because he's like, if we're going to be doing this all day, I'm going to hardly be able to ride any rides. And so he, he, this was early on in the line. He went his own way. And so we get up to the top. Um, where you're about to get on the roller coaster, and I hear the attendant say something about a world record. And I'm thinking, 
why is she talking about the world record set by other roller coasters in this park at, at this roller coaster? So that was the first, what should have been the first um, indication that I was about to get myself into trouble. Literally, as I'm getting into um, the cart or whatever you call it, I see a text from Nate. It says, dude, that was the scariest roller coaster I've ever been on. Now, at this point, I could have made a big scene and said, I'm, I, I'm not going on. How do I get down to the bottom? But I was stuck. I was stuck. The bar came down. The seatbelt went on. And we went out, up and out. And we got to the top of this drop, and it goes like this. And we sat there for 10 seconds, and then it just dropped. Uh, the biggest drop of any roller coaster for a dive coaster in the world at this point, I know that, okay, what the attendant was talking about was this ride. I'm scared out of my mind, literally thinking I'm going to have an anxiety attack or a heart attack or both at the same time. And so finally, we do the drop. We're coming up, and Wayne was with us, and he looks at me and says, you survived. Just as he says that, we stop, we go like this, and we drop again. There is a point to this story. But I want you to imagine me at the top of that roller coaster, getting on and realizing what I'm getting myself into. I wanted so desperately to bail. I wanted to run, and maybe because of fear of uh, being embarrassed or whatever, I stood firm. I stayed. The, the, belt, the seat belt was uh, done, and the bar came down, and there I was. I want you to hold on to that imagery, because that is what Paul wants for us when we face suffering and hardship. We want to bail. What is about to come is so unpredictable that we can barely stand the thought of it. But stand firm in the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of that as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In death, let's talk about what it means to display the fact that Jesus is great in death. How do we talk about this? I, I ask that because here we have Paul under house arrest, and his death was impending. It was impending. And particularly in ancient times, you could probably think of it as the fact that everybody's death was impending, but at the same time, all of our deaths are impending. That's part of the awkwardness of living in our bodies as human beings in a fallen world. We saw how Paul said in verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. I'd rather die, rather go be with Jesus right now. And in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. He gets to experience more of Christ in this life, but to die is actually more of a gain because he physically would be in the presence of Jesus. We talked about how this separation of body and soul is a temporary phase or a temporary stage. But how does death play into displaying the greatness of Jesus? How do we in our deaths explain the Jesus story? Remember, as Christians, we are to be living explanations. Well, I want to take you back to ancient times for a few minutes. Roman Empire Living conditions were harsh in many cities, and epidemics would regularly break out. Sickness 
would uh, wreak havoc on people's bodies. What do you do if you're a follower of Jesus? How do you respond? How do you react? It would be understandable, at least for me, if I'm being honest, I have a hard time imagining myself not just simply wanting to bail, right? To get off the roller coaster. I'm not going on this roller coaster. I'm going to jump off and I'm going to bail. I'm going to retreat and I'm going to try to go be where I can be safe. That is not what the majority of Christians chose. Why? Because the Jesus story had so dramatically changed their lives. Because they believed that true life was found in displaying the Jesus story in their own lives. William McNeil, a historian, uh, we have this on one of the slides, says, Another advantage Christians enjoyed over pagans was that the teaching of their faith made life meaningful, even amid sudden and surprising death. Even a shattered remnant of survivors who had somehow made it through war or pestilence or both could find warm, immediate, and healing consolation in the vision of a heavenly existence for those missing relatives and friends. Christianity was, therefore, a system of thought and feeling thoroughly adapted to times of trouble in which hardship, disease, and violent death commonly prevailed. Do not read too quickly that last line. Christianity was a system of thought and feeling thoroughly adapted to a time of troubles in which hardship, disease, and violent death commonly prevailed. In other words, McNeil, the historian, is basically saying Christianity was made for this. These are the kinds of conditions in which Christianity thrives. When it seems like death is prevailing, when sickness is... uh, seems to be consuming the bodies of people around us. What did the Christians do? They moved toward the pain. They moved toward the suffering. How? Why? Because their eternal security was sure. And that's what you're hearing from Paul here. Either is a win-win situation. If I stay, there's fruitful ministry for me here. I'll get the joy of seeing more people come to know Jesus. But if I die, well, that's gain. I get to be with Jesus. Those kinds of people are dangerous in our world. And I mean dangerous in a positive way. Rodney Stark, who, that, that quote from McNeil was actually in Rodney Stark's book. Rodney Stark is a sociologist who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He says, when disaster struck, the Christians were better able to cope. Had classical society not been disrupted and demoralized by these catastrophes, Christianity might never have become so dominant a faith. Did you catch that? His point of view is that if these catastrophes, these epidemics did not wreak havoc on the Roman Empire, Christianity may have never grown as the way it it did. But it did. Why? Because for a follower of Jesus, what is the goal? a living explanation of Jesus. And Jesus offered his life. He offered his death for the world, for us, his people. Our eternal security that we have as Christians, as followers of Jesus, gives us a tremendous ability to serve the world without fear. Now, when I say without fear, yes, there are going to be times where we fear. Paul feared. 
There are other places uh, in his letters where he alludes to the fact that he is fearful, that he's scared. That's normal. It's part of being human. But at the end of the day, he could do what Jesus called him to do, to move out into suffering in the world because he knew a Savior who suffered for him. And as a result, his eternal security was sure. So as we conclude, look at verse, look back at verse 21, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm going to give you a a little assignment here. If you were to say, for me to live is, how would you fill in the blank? For me to live is what? For Paul, it was Christ. How would you fill in the blank? It's another way of answering the question, what story are you telling with your life? What explanation are you providing to the world around you with your life? For you to live is what? For me to live is what? I want to conclude with a quote um, from one of the commentators. His last name's Ellicott. I couldn't find his first name. So just remember Ellicott said this. My body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. My body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. Notice that Paul says that we get to suffer for Christ. Verse 29, it's been granted to us that we don't only get to live for Christ, but in him, believing in him, we also suffer for his sake. This is privilege. This is honor. This is true joy that we get to walk in the footsteps of our Savior in order to make life, in order to make him known in a dying world. May Christ be the theater that is on display in our bodies. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would make this be true for our lives, for us as individuals, and for us as a community. I pray that you would mend our hearts. I pray that you would remove the curse off of our hearts so that we would treasure and value what is truly most valuable in life. We thank you for your life and for your death and for how you had others in view, how you had us in view. I pray that your grace would continue to change us, and I pray that your grace would continue to give us the power to move out into our world, even in the face of suffering, in order to make your story known. We pray this for your glory and honor, so that your name would be magnified and valued in the world. Amen.